Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. My name is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and former health tech executive. And my name is Alex Merwin. I'm an operations executive who's worked at two startups that exited as unicorns. And now Joe and I work with healthcare and life science startups and investors at AWS. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Dedner. Kevin is the CEO and co-founder of Hurdle Health, a tech-enabled provider of culturally intentional mental health care. This is the first episode in the mini-season that we're putting together featuring startups addressing health equity. Kevin and I discuss why he's optimistic about the future of health equity, how COVID-19 impacted how we think about mental health, and why Hurdle focuses on cultural humility, cultural responsiveness, and cultural intentionality rather than cultural competency. Enjoy. Kevin Dedner, CEO and founder of Hurdle Health. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. To start out, can you tell us a bit about Hurdle and what y'all do? First of all, let me just thank you for your friendship. We've been building a friendship, I think, for a little bit over a year now. And I just want to thank you for uh, the invitation to come on to the show. We're really excited about the work that we're doing at Hurdle, certainly on the heels of the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd. We're all a little bit more aware of the issues around health equity and health disparities. And some people often frame it as diversity, inclusion, and belonging as well. At Hurdle, we started even years before the pandemic. And our sort of central understanding of the mental health care system was that we had a mental health care system that was not designed for everyone. Our therapists in our country are really trained to support middle-class white Americans who experience a single trauma. And there's very little training for our therapists to support them with dealing with diverse populations, which brings in what we do at Hurdle. We train our therapists in an evidence-based technique that helps them improve their cultural humility and cultural responsiveness. And that is super important because ethnic, ethnic minorities are 50% more likely to terminate therapy because of the lack of provider fit. And following the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd, we saw the largest increase in treatment-seeking behavior among minorities that we've ever seen. So this is really important work that we're doing, and I appreciate the question. What about your own background? You are uniquely positioned to tackle this challenge. Can you share a bit about your background and experience? It's funny, you and I were talking about this before the show started. I, I actually started my career in politics and thinking that I would make a career in helping elected officials and maybe become an elected official one day myself. And I got jaded with politics very quickly. And yeah. I took a job with the American Cancer Society. And that's where I fell in love with public health and public health advocacy. I always have really prided myself on working on the most pressing public health issues of the day whether that be tobacco control, uh, cancer control, HIV AIDS, childhood obesity. And believe it or not, I began to see mental health as a public health priority. Right. But I did not know that I myself would experience depression. And after my depression, I became more committed to really helping to rethink what mental health care looks like. And that's how I ended up um, founding the company along with my co-founder, Oliver Sims to focus on mental health. Like I always wanted to work on the most pressing public health issues. And after I experienced depression myself, I just had a much more keen awareness of how big the problem was. As we discussed going into this, we are trying to build a conversation here around 
health equity through a, a mini season that we're tackling on the podcast. And the framing that we're looking at is adapted from what the World Health Organization describes as health equity. They say that equity is the absence of unfair, avoidable differences among groups of people, whether those groups are defined socially, economically, demographically, or geographically, or by any other dimension of inequality. And A, I'd love some of your reaction to that framing, but particularly as it relates to what you're doing at Hurdle and how you're approaching your core user group that you are going after. Yeah, I think that's a very loaded statement there, but I'll try to parse it out and maybe break it down a little and connect it to why the work that we're doing at Hurdle is so important. I guess the unfortunate thing that we must all admit when we have these kind of conversations is we have a history in this country that is filled with biasness, prejudice, racism, and these things have spilled over into our systems, into our healthcare system, our housing system, our banking system, these things trickle down into our systems. And certainly that's the case for the mental health care system. I alluded to this earlier, that research and learnings that we lean on that have really informed how we support people through mental health challenges have really come from learnings on middle-class white families who've experienced a single trauma. Right. And if you just take a step back, Joe, and think about that at face value, we know that's a very problematic way that we're training people to support people because we know culture is much more nuanced. When you think of that framing of health equity, an important part of achieving health equity is being able to acknowledge like how systems have been built, right? And if it requires like a, un, a dismantling, rethinking of it, some of us have to roll our sleeves up and do that work. And in, in the mental health care system, we can look at a formal apology has been issued by the APA for their role in helping to perpetuate racism and discrimination by how they framed at one time Black people too simple for talk therapy. We have a really ugly legacy that we must deal with when we talk about these types of issues of health equity. The final thing I'll say this, you didn't ask this, say this, there, there's a lot of talk about diversity, equity, mm -hmm. and inclusion. And it's great at face value. Companies want to use this language. But Joe, this type of work requires people to really roll up their sleeves, to rethink how they're making offerings to their employees. What does their workplace look like? It requires hard work. Kevin, I appreciate your candor, obviously. I know you pretty well, so I expect nothing less. I'm curious, you referenced this a bit in your description of what Hurdle is doing, but what have you seen as far as an evolution in this broader discussion? Clearly, this is something we're talking about more now, but have you found that to be more a part of the discussion? How much of that is part of the founding vision of Hurdle and then the recent trajectory of what you're building? As someone who, as I alluded to earlier, spent my entire career working in public health, I could not be more optimistic about where we are. The conversations that we have had with payers in the short time that our company has existed and how we've been able to put national agreements in place with payers, I just think it's remarkable. 
And also what I hear, and this is broader context of public health, in the conversations that I participate in, how much more honest and transparent we are about the data. There were many times in my career and I would be in rooms and the elephant in the corner was the gaps between the life expectancy between black and whites are the gaps in disparities in maternal health. And no one was like, had the courage to really call it out for what it was. Right. And I see a willingness today all across the board, payers and health leaders, thought leaders, political leaders, that we're really taking these issues on much more directly. You know, as it relates to mental health care, I think we were beginning to see an evolution in people's thinking about how important mental health work is. There are several payers who came out and began to frame mental health as a larger issue and a part of health. And you saw celebrities coming out talking about their mental health struggles personally, publicly. And I think that really set the stage for what we've seen the last couple of years. I think we've now started to see mental health be destigmatized in a way that's going to be really healthy for our country long term. For people of color in particular, before the pandemic, the data was very clear. African Americans, for example, were 20% more likely to experience mental health problems. And when we think about data like this, the fundamental question we have to ask is why? And I think that now <laughs> where we are is that we're really getting to the why, like we're being much more honest about what it means to experience microaggressions in workplace, what it, how over time those micro, multiple microaggressions, Joe, can become the equivalent of a traumatic event. So we're now really merging sort of the science with all of, with all of sort of the narrative that's been out there for a while. And I think that what this means long-term is like we're really reimagining what the, not only the mental care system looks like, but ultimately I think that this is going to really influence what the healthcare system looks like. And finally, let me just say one final thing, and you didn't ask for this either, but I'll, I want to add this there. Go for it. The other thing that happened in health across the board, maybe the last 20 years, we all adopted this language around cultural competency, right? And right. companies prided themselves, doctors talked about they were culturally competent. And if you just think about the face value definition of competent, like it, we know that, like, how could I declare myself competent in one's culture, right? So that's another evolution that's really happened. I would say that has even happened in the last 12 to 16 months that we've started to see that language start to be rejected, which is why at Hurdle, we talk about cultural humility, mm. cultural responsiveness, and cultural intentionality. Like I, you know, as, as, as hard as I try to connect and understand different cultures, I think it would be a pretty bold assessment for me to declare myself competent in one's culture, other than my own. As a follow-on to that, what do you see, and you touched on this a bit on the cultural competency language, what are the most pressing areas where the most immediate progress is necessary? Like, where do we need to go quickly to get to where we want to get to, generally, but also within 
within the mental health space, certainly. Yeah, you know, I, I'll sort of, um, I'll use use some language that I think has become popular. I, I think we have to really focus on the social determinants of health. And I would go so far to say that mental health is a determinant of health. We got to look at these systems and how systems influence people's lives. And all of us, whether you're in housing, whether you're in transportation, whether you're in education, like we all have to be aware of like how we're pulling levers in these systems that ultimately impact the health of people individually and communities collectively. I'm afraid that I cannot single out one particular area that's most important because I think it's people having decent housing is incredibly important. I think the education is important, right. right? But I'm also saying that these things we know ultimately influence health. And there, there are studies that have been very clear, Joe, that health is produced, um, you know, by these things. And we have to do our part in trying to make sure that people have good access to good systems. Kevin, you referenced the, the data and how that informs the discussion currently. What about the technology side of it? How has technology helped or hurt advancing health equity generally, but also specifically within your own organization and within your experience? I was thinking about this the other day, and I'm going to give sort of an example related, but not unrelated. My son plays rugby at Damatha. And um, the other day I was super busy and I couldn't get to the parent meeting. Well, I decided I would just call in on the Zoom. And I mean, it was, you know, it was just like most of the parents called in on the Zoom for the meeting. Right. And I just thought about like, wow, how this empowers parents who were trying to get home to cook dinner and didn't have the space to get to the meeting so their kid can participate in the sport. Now, while that analogy is very simple, it's really like what technology has done for healthcare. And I think certainly we have to acknowledge that access to broadband, access to the proper technical equipment, computers, i.e. smartphones, tablets is an important part of it. But I believe that really technology is key to us achieving health equity. But we have to think about how to even make the technology access equitable. Since we're, we're, we're using that word, we, we really have to think about it. But when we think about, for example, the provider shortage, we think about the lack of providers in rural areas, right? These pipeline issues that we have are going to be generational work for us. And the only way that we can mitigate that within the next several years is through really deploying technology. So one great thing about the pandemic is that it really pushed us to embrace technology in a way that many of us was reluctant to use technology in that way. And I don't see that going back. So I, I think technology is on our side here. It's not an enemy of ours. It is literally on our side. Investors are a big part of this discussion because it's been funding a lot of this growth recently. How can investors think through furthering this mission? What should they be looking at when they look at companies and they think, oh, there's an element here, maybe the 
focus of the company is in the equity space, or there's an element of what they're doing that can support that. What would you, if you were on the other side of the table, so to speak, how would you think through those impacts and the role of the investment community in driving that? Well, because I happen to have investors and I spend a lot of time with them, I think I've learned to start thinking like them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or hopefully, right? <laughs> you know, but I, I think, you know, one of the things I think is incredibly important, and I'm just grateful for the, the investors who I work with, is their trust in my insight on the problem. But I think investors have to look for people who understand these problems that we're trying to solve. And the course investors are always looking for a return. And, but I just have this like basic thought about how this works. If something is costing people money, it's likely to save people money somewhere else and help make money on the other side. And so right. when we start to truly address health equity, we're going to be saving employers, for example, money, and they'll be willing to pay for that, Right. In our case, when we think about mental health, we know that mental health is tied to sick days, it's tied to performance. And so when we can help people show up a little bit happier and healthier at work, they're going to perform better. I think investors, when they think about these problems, we're not, um, and certainly people who are investing in healthcare, I would say for the most part, understand this. This is not uh, Instagram our Twitter play here. Right. What we're talking about is rolling up our sleeves, having some time and space to figure out how we solve these businesses, these problems to make the businesses profitable. You need the time and space to do it. So if people are looking for the absolute quick return, I don't think that they're probably not a, a, a seasoned digital health investor. I think that the more seasoned investors know that these problems are about rolling up your sleeves and finding a way to solve them and ultimately finding a way to make the business work. You touched on not just the patience within the investment community that's required, but also at the companies themselves. So Hurdle, how do you think about facilitating that kind of patience within your own team that's coming in and probably very eager to solve these problems as quickly as they can. I have to tell you that this is a really hard thing, I think, for any startup because we want to get things right. And the nature of our job requires us to continuously be trying something different. I was talking to my team a few days ago. And I was asking about the drop-offs. I'll just use a very practical example here. I was asking about the drop-offs in registration. I wanted to know like where people were dropping off. And I was like, look, I want this rebuilt. I think we can do better than this. Let's go back to the drawing board and redo this. And so someone on my team said, well, we've rebuilt this four times already. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I was like, well, we will rebuild it again. <laughs> the fifth. So yeah, the fifth one. So, you know, and of course for us, like our business is super complicated in the in the case of like we need consents. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a minor, we need we have a whole another level of consents that we have to do. And so trying to figure out how you get those workflows right to move people through the process quicker and faster is I don't think that you ever stop that. I think as the technology is advancing, 
you got to be willing to go back to the drawing board, which requires a lot of patience. It's like that old saying about when you're editing your writing, you have to kill your darlings. Like you have to, you can't be precious Absolutely. about what you've done. That That's the way that you get to a better piece of written work. And it seems like it's the same iterative process on the product development yeah. side. I think that that's certainly the case here. And particularly when we're talking about moving people through or giving people access to a service that they haven't traditionally gotten access to, right? That's where it requires us to be a, a lot more empathetic, a lot more. We have to ask hard questions like what's happening here, what's happening there. And I suspect that there are times that my team, because I have been accused of being interested in the smallest details, that I, I suspect that there are times that they get frustrated with me, like poking at the smallest details. But I do think that when you know, you're talking about providing a service to people who haven't traditionally got the service, you have to be always pausing and reflecting and questioning their movements to make sure they're the right movements. You have a essentially a two-sided market, if I understand it correctly, where you have to recruit therapists and others, clinicians to be on the platform. Then you have to sell it to somebody like a payer or a large employer, but then you also have to recruit users out of that group that you've aligned with. Is that an accurate, it's like a multi-sided yeah, play, I, right? I, I think that's that's pretty accurate. The only thing that I, I would add to it is if it's a large employer, you would want to have a much stronger implementation mm -hmm. plan in place to where you're actively recruiting people into the, the plan together. But I think you just laid out a very short, precise way of describing the complexity of a business like ours is that we have several stakeholders. In America, um, healthcare is, you know, still a business that is mostly influenced by um, employers and payers. Most people get their health insurance through their employer. The consumer is ultimately making a decision about what services they want. Right. And so that, that shows like the complexity of that relationship. Um, but then on the other side for us, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head here. We want to be the provider of choice where the employer of choice, where providers want to work with us. And so mm -hmm. we work really hard to do that. And we do think that there are some unique things about Hurdle that does attract um, providers to us very uniquely because of, of our mission. We see a lot of people, you know, they connect with the brand because the mission, it resonates with them. And so, you know, it's, it's an incredibly complex business. There's regulation at the state level. Therapists are, must be licensed in the states that they're, they work in. Insurance is you is a very complicated mm. deal. You have to have an agreement in place with a payer in every state, and and and, it, and we are very fortunate. We we do have national agreements in place with payers. In many cases, we are at the state level working with payers to put agreements in place, and so that is very tedious administrative work to make the business work. And what has been the most surprising thing for you leading this company? Because you came from doing many different things on the policy side, on the advocacy side, and then now into a venture-backed growing startup in a really hot space. If you could look back and give yourself advice starting this out, what would you say? Well, you know, I think um, I, I've tried to be, I think the best type of 
founder, it's one who listens to their investors who would arguably, arguably have more experience in the companies are running companies than they do. But what I have is sort of the insight into the problem. And so what I've tried to do is to, to merge my experience with, with their experience. I think if, if there were advice that I would give myself two years ago when we first started to attract funding is to experiment more. And you can experiment without risking it all, right? Right. Um, and, and But it took me a while to understand that. I thought experimenting meant risking it all. But there there are ways to experiment and not risk kitchen sink, you know? Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, my, my um, you know, the advice I would give myself is to find ways to experiment. You talked about how we're focused on enterprise sales. But I still think that there is an incredible opportunity talking directly to consumers. And I think if you look at the space, our competitors, they talk to consumers directly. Right. They're selling to their employees, but they continue to talk to consumers. My, my sort of advice hindsight is to experiment more. We, people notice, but we, we kind of say fail fast. You know, mm -hmm. we've heard that in the startup space, really. Um, you know, but nobody says what that means is experiment. Right. That means try this, try that, try this, try that, you know, and that's what you have to have the willingness to keep going. And I've, I've cheated a bit because I usually close with a piece of advice, but I, I was knowing you a bit and, and tapping into our, our prior discussions. I wanted to hear about that journey, but I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the well on the advice piece here. Um, but very specifically, one of the things that I've been continually impressed with you, knowing you outside of the show in our working relationship through my role at AWS is your willingness to display vulnerability to talk about your personal journey. You wrote a book about this. You're, you speak about this. And what would you say to other founders that are less eager or willing or able to do that? What's the importance of being vulnerable as a startup founder with all the stress and pressure that entails? That's a great question. Here's what I would just say to people about vulnerability. And I say this, as humbly as, as I know how to say it, vulnerability is a superpower, not a superpower that should be overused, but a power that allows you to connect with people in ways that, that I, I, I cannot begin to explain how extraordinary of a power it is. It's not a power that you use, that you exploit, but it is one as a leader, if you are, and I think particularly for founders, here's the deal. Like we, we close our eyes at night and we see something that other people can't see. That is these successful companies down the road, right? Now we might be able to convince a few other people to see what we see, but the vulnerability is what convinces people that they should come along on the journey. That's where your superpower is. And so, you know, what I've tried to do, candidly, I learned vulnerability coming out of my depression. People say, well, how did you start doing it? Well, the truth is, Joe, I was so sad that I, when people would ask me how you're doing, I was like, I'm just so, just so sad. Right. I was just so sad. So I learned the power, like in my weakest moment, I learned the power of vulnerability. 
And of course, as I recovered from my depression, I realized like how when I would stand up and tell my story, how it would connect with people. And as I got stronger and stronger, and I think my heart started to heal and my soul started to heal from, from the darkest days of my life, I didn't let that power go. I realized how powerful it was. Kevin Dedner, CEO and founder of Hurdle Health. Thanks so much for joining me today. Joe, thank you. This has been fun. I look forward to seeing you again in person soon. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com startups.